KPBS On Demand is supported by the National Conflict Resolution Center. Topics like political polarization and hybrid work policies can create workplace conflict. NCRC can help workplace leaders navigate divisive issues with the culture, communication, and conflict certificate. More at ncrconline.com. Mayor Todd Gloria discusses topics from San Diego Pride to the Ash Street deal. The choices left to me by my predecessor, Maureen, are bad and worse. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Jade Hindman. This is KPBS Midday Edition. San Diego gets initial funding to move train tracks away from the Del Mar Bluffs. This is a great deal for San Diego and San Diego. This is the start of something that people thought it's a pipe dream, but it's no longer a pipe dream, it's real. We're gonna start the work immediately. A state audit investigates San Diego's rising utility rates and the tragic tale of San Diego's 1947 slavery trial. That's ahead on Midday Edition. KPBS On Demand is supported by MaraCal Design and Remodeling, helping homeowners with their home remodeling needs. From ADUs to custom kitchen remodels and room additions, MaraCal Design and Remodeling designs and builds your dream home. Learn more at trustyourhometous.com. The city of San Diego has just started a new fiscal year with Mayor Todd Gloria's $5 billion ready-to-rebuild budget plan. It was unanimously approved by the city council. But other aspects of city business remain unresolved. For instance, the mayor's proposal to settle the legal chaos surrounding the Ash Street building lease has been abruptly withdrawn. And the bill for San Diego's foolhardy Prop B pension experiment continues to rise. Mayor Todd Gloria joins us this morning to talk about those issues and more. And Mayor Gloria, welcome to the program. Thanks for the opportunity, Maureen. Now, you came up with a plan to settle the legal battle over the leases of the Ash Street building and the Civic Plaza by having the city pay millions for those properties. But you withdrew that settlement from a city council vote right before the vote last week and shortly after the city attorney came out against it. Now, As this question sounds, this is a very complicated issue. But did you withdraw the plan because you lost votes on the council? We don't predetermine the vote of the city council. What I did was react to uh, what I heard from numerous uh, folks, including many in the media, who wanted more time uh, with the settlement agreement. Maureen, if you were to go to the city's website, you'd see 28 separate attachments uh, associated with this particular council uh, item. And I wanted the public to have a full month to take a look at it. Uh, you know, part of how we got into this mess in the first place was the lack of transparency. That will not be a feature of my administration. We're going to be as upfront, as honest, and as transparent as possible. And I believe that we can uh, spend the month allowing everyone to vet this, ask questions, uh, and come back and, and hopefully win a vote of the city council to put this sorry uh, history uh, behind us and move forward on addressing other major issues that are facing the city today. I'm going to ask you this as straightforwardly as I can. Why do you believe it's a good idea to pay $132 million to buy out the leases for two buildings, one that is uninhabitable, while the city is involved in litigation that claims the building leases violated state law? It's a complex situation, but I can tell you the succinct answer is that every other option available to us is worse. Uh, 
Maureen, the fact of the matter is, is that on our current trajectory, we could spend the next half to full decade arguing this matter at tremendous cost to taxpayers. And if we win, what we'll do is have the opportunity to spend the same amount of money you're describing to fix the building that our contractors broke and simultaneously have 800 of our employees evicted from the building they currently occupy. That's if we win, Maureen. If we lose, not only do we get the privilege of paying millions of dollars in legal fees, but we also have the responsibility to repair that same building and pay the same amounts for the building that you just mentioned. The choices left to me by my predecessor, Maureen, are bad and worse. And all I promise San Diegans to do is to try and resolve this matter in the best of their interest in a transparent manner and to do it in a way that allows us to move forward. I believe this settlement agreement will do that. Moving on to another costly subject for San Diego. San Diego voters approved Prop B in 2012 to stop most city workers from getting city pensions. The courts eventually found Prop B illegal. Now the city has to pay to replace all those pensions it didn't give to workers. Why does the price tag on this remedy keep going up? For a variety of reasons, Maureen, all of which are the reasons why I opposed Proposition B when I was a member of the city council. And I hope that that means something, you know, in terms of San Diegans' willingness to understand that I engage in these issues deeply. I look at them closely and I try and give the best opinion that I possibly can. My opposition uh, to Proposition B was relatively lonely political position back then. Here we are today where it's been thrown out by the courts and has left us with what we all knew would happen, enormous legal fees um, with large obligations of taxpayers. Where have you heard this before, Maureen? Um, so, I'm at least in the privileged position of making sure that we can redo this in a way that is uh, advantageous, not just to our employees, but to taxpayers. And the fact is, Maureen, right now we have so many vacant positions at the city because for years we've held pay flat and we stripped away benefits that you can get at most other municipal employers. Uh, in terms of the costs that you're describing, Maureen, uh, those are in many ways uh, defined by both uh, employee behavior, where it's not clear how many of our employees would choose to re-enter the pension system. Most of them have, and so that has a cost associated with it. And of course, our stock market has also has an impact on this. What we know is everything that we're talking about, you and I right now, has been known to the city. We've been working with our Department of Finance and our employee bargaining groups to anticipate these costs. Ultimately, many of the final decisions are those uh, left to our independent pension board, uh, and they will make those decisions in the coming months. But whatever we will do, we will make sure that we can facilitate them financially here at the city, and we won't repeat the mistakes of the past, mistakes that have, again, been left to me to fix and that I'm doing because that's in the best interest of the city and its taxpayers. Right now, San Diego seems to have a split personality when it comes to dealing with homelessness. On the one hand, outreach and services are expanding. On the other, crackdowns on homeless tent encampments and the cars and vans of homeless people are increasing. So what is going on? I would disagree with the question, Maureen, respectfully. I think we have a very uh, focused uh, plan uh, that provides robust services uh, for our homeless individuals. Uh, in the year and a half that I've been privileged to be the mayor of the city, we have uh, created and dramatically expanded our homeless street outreach efforts. We have dramatically increased the amount of shelter beds that are available on any given night with more on the way. And we've been very deliberate in pursuing pro-housing policies that create housing, not just for the formerly homeless, but for working and middle-class San Diegans that also are squeezed by our housing crisis. Um, all of these are being made available 
people. And there is an expectation that folks will avail themselves of these services. Uh, what we also will be in terms of compassion uh, for those sleeping on the sidewalk is not allow them to live in the kind of squalid conditions that resulted in 20 of them dying in 2017 when we had a hepatitis A outbreak. So I don't think that there's a, uh, a split approach to this. What I think we have is leading with compassion, providing all of those resources at the cost of tens of millions of dollars annually to taxpayers. Um, and we have an expectation that folks will utilize those services to get off the streets and stay off the streets. Leaving people on the sidewalk, Marine, is not compassionate. And San Diego will be led by compassion when it comes to addressing our homelessness crisis. Mayor Gloria, the San Diego Union Tribune is reporting on the exodus of San Diego police officers from the department, a 52% increase over last year. Now, the report suggests a number of possible explanations for police resigning, from vaccine mandates to staffing shortages to new police reforms. Why do you think San Diego is losing police officers? Well, not a matter of what I think, but what I know is that this is not unique to San Diego. When I talk to my fellow colleagues, mayors across this nation, all of us are seeing this. It's a national trend that I think speaks to many of the issues that you raised. You know, law enforcement is a difficult job. Uh, in normal times. These are not normal times. There is tremendous scrutiny, tremendous accountability, appropriately so, as well as other demands and pressures on those folks who uh, take on these responsibilities. My job is to make sure that we resource them appropriately. We have fully funded our police department in the new city budget uh, to compensate them fairly. We recently approved uh, 10% pay raises for our law enforcement officers, uh, and then to hold them accountable by doing things like having an independent police review board. Uh, What I think we're seeing, particularly here in San Diego, is a large number of our officers are retirement age, and many of them are choosing to retire. And that may go back to your question about pension benefits and the like. You know, we have to find ways to incentivize folks uh, to be able to work here at the city of San Diego and to stay. One of the things I'm currently working with Chief Nislight on is a package of recruitment and retention bonuses that can cause people to want to choose to come work at the city of San Diego. I think we have one of the best police departments in the country. If we explain that to folks who are considering a career in law enforcement, my belief is they'll choose to come work here at the city. KPBS reporter Claire Tregesser is reporting today that the city is starting to send out termination letters to city employees, including police, who have refused to get a COVID vaccination and refused to take weekly COVID tests. Won't that increase the staffing shortages at the SDPD? It could, but it doesn't have to, Maureen. Uh, the fact of the matter is we implemented our vaccine mandate uh, late last year. Uh, and as you can tell by timeline, we have been extremely patient in working with individuals on an individual basis to identify those who need a, a reasonable accommodation when it comes to being vaccinated and then providing testing free of charge while at work to make it super convenient for folks to stay within um, the guidelines of our vaccine mandate. Um, I don't think it's too much to ask uh, for folks to protect the health of themselves, uh, their coworkers, and the folks that we're honored and privileged to serve. And that's what this vaccine mandate is about. Uh, you are right. Uh, we are at a point now where, you know, over six, seven months into this, uh, we have folks who continue to not uh, either request an exemption or who have requested one but are now refusing to test. At some point, there is a disciplinary process that has to kick in, that is kicking in now. 
My fervent hope is that folks will understand why they should get vaccinated and choose to do so, or if they continue to feel as though they can't be vaccinated uh, for whatever uh, religious or health reason uh, that they get tested on a regular basis. I mean, it's not too much to ask. It's what I'd ask every San Diegan to do. And I think it's particularly important for public servants, people who serve our public, our residents directly uh, to do that. Uh, A part of why I was able to enjoy the 4th of July holiday, why so many San Diegans were able to enjoy that, is that we've been able to increase our vaccination rates and thereby reduce our infection rates and allow our economy to reopen again. I think that uh, city workers should lead by example, and they have. Marine, prior to the adoption of our vaccine mandate, roughly 69% of city employees were vaccinated. After the implementation of the mandate, we're over 90% now. And that has undoubtedly helped us to reopen our economy, get our kids back in school, and get us back to some level of normalcy. And I expect every city employee to abide by these rules that we've adopted and that are now in place. And later this week, San Diego Pride returns in person after a two-year pandemic pause. Along with the celebrations comes a note of caution, because yesterday we saw a 4th of July parade in the Chicago area attacked. There have been threats against Pride celebrations in other parts of the country. How is San Diego balancing security against celebration during Pride Week and the Pride Parade on July 16th? Well, we have always provided a robust amount of security, uh, both private security as well as uh, local law enforcement uh, at the Pride Parade. Many spectators have probably long seen that as they go along the parade route, and this year will be no different. We'll do all that we can uh, to make sure that folks can go out and celebrate uh, and enjoy uh, this wonderful civic event and to do so safely. Uh, We ask for the public's participation Obviously, you know, if you see something, say something, Uh, make sure that you are uh, in areas uh, that are uh, well policed and uh, let's make sure that we have a good time. But Maureen, uh, it is uh, frustrating to have this uh, threat of violence uh, across the nation impacting this event and events across the nation like it after a two year hiatus. Many of us have missed this event. As the first openly gay mayor of the city of San Diego, uh, I'm looking forward to the opportunity uh, to be able to march uh, in our parade proudly and uh, in reflection of the historic nature of uh, this opportunity to lead this great city. And we want to be able to do it safely. I have full faith in our San Diego Police Department as well as our regional law enforcement partners. But again, we live in these uh, terrible times where it is easier to get a gun than it is to get access to uh, reasonable health care in this country. Um, And as long as we continue to have those kinds of policies coming out at the federal level, uh, the local governments will have to step up and we will be doing that. I encourage people to go out, celebrate Pride, as well as Comic-Con and some of the other major civic events that will be happening in our city over the next number of weeks. But know that uh, San Diego Police Department will be there to keep folks safe. And we're putting everything we have toward it to make sure that people can have fun and they can do it safely. San Diego Mayor Todd Gloria, thank you so much for taking the time out to speak with us. Thank you, Maureen. Sandag's long-standing train track relocation plan along a 1.7-mile stretch of the Del Mar Bluffs has gotten its initial funding from the state of California. The growing need to relocate the tracks was highlighted last week when a bluff collapse sent a massive boulder crashing down from the cliffside at Torrey Pine State Beach. Thankfully, no injuries were reported. Joining me now with more on the plans for this relocation is Hassan Akrata, CEO of the San Diego Association of Governments. Hassan, welcome. 
Thank you. Good to be with you, Jade. So this state transportation funding package includes $300 million to begin relocating the train tracks in Del Mar away from the bluffs. Uh, so what will $300 million allow Sandag to do? Look, this uh, when I joined Sandag a little over three years ago, uh, I made it a priority and one of the agencies top priority to deal with the eroding Del Mar Bluff. In my 10 years twice, we have to slow the trains down because the bluff collapsed. Uh, so we went and, and, and got over $100 million to fix it. But then I, I said many times, you can fight nature. Nature will win at the end of the day. Uh, temporary fixes is, is not good. So we went and started a study to remove the track of the bluff. And we worked with uh, Senator Pro Tem Atkin, who's amazing, uh, to get money to start that, removing the track of the bluff. So this $300 million will be able to environmentally clear design the new tunnel with the track in them off the bluff and will make us as a region very competitive to receiving billions of dollars from uh, federal and state governments. So this is a great day for San Diego and San Diego. This is the start of something that people thought it's a pipe dream, but it's no longer a pipe dream. It's real. We're going to start the work immediately. And you mentioned nature always wins. I mean, we heard last week about a huge bluff collapse, a boulder uh, bigger than a car fell onto Torrey Pine State Beach. Luckily, no one was injured. Uh, but how critical is it to get this relocation project started in your mind? You know, Jed, uh, there is no way around the fact that this is a nationally significant, has a state significant, and has a regional significant corridor. This is the only corridor for goods movements and people movement that link us north. And there is no question. The bluff is eroding six inches a year and has been for a long time. And there's no question that at one point this will not be operational. So moving the track of the bluff is a must for our region from all kinds of reason, uh, economic reason, climate action reason, but, but most importantly, for safety. Uh, and so, uh, you know, this is no brainer. I know it's going to cost a lot more money to accomplish it, maybe two, two and a half billion dollars. But this $300 million is a good down payment to start the process and to get San Diego to the point where there is no point of return. There's no longer talk about, oh, it's another study. This is real now. We're going to start spending real money, $300 million, to start uh, that process. With passenger and cargo train traffic having been disrupted by the unstable bluffs in the past, uh, how safe is the existing 1.7-mile stretch of track now? Right now, I can tell you safety is number one priority for Sandak. So we're spending $115 million to stabilize the bluff by inserting piles and building seawalls. And we just got unanimous approval from the Coastal Commission. So we will never compromise safety. But again, let me underline, temporarily fix the bluff not permanently fix the bluff. And, you know, you can't predict nature very well. Uh, sometimes things could happen. And, and again, in my 10 years, which is short time in San Diego, three years, twice we had collapses, the seawall collapsed, we had to slow the train down. And that could happen any moment in, in a year where we get a lot of rain and obviously the water seepage from the houses above. Uh, this could be a disaster in the making if we don't pay attention to it. But to your point, Safety is number one priority. Now it's safe. We're spending real money, over $100 million to stabilize. How significant do you expect disruptions along this stretch to be if the train is not relocated? Very significant because we're talking about a billion dollar a year of economic activity is going to be disrupted. We're talking about 
thousands of jobs related to that. We're talking about actually linking us to the rest uh, of the state. And we're also talking about militarily. I mean, this is uh, designated as a nationally significant corridor. So in all aspects of it, not having the corridor operational is very disruptive. You know, people say, well, we'll just move things by trucks. Well, you've driven the I-5 and you know that it's already congested. Imagine putting all these things we put in trains and trucks and putting it in the I-5. I can't imagine that. So therefore, this corridor has to continue to be operational for many years to come, many generations to come. And we're starting to make sure that this is going to be fixed. And by the way, we're not only talking about moving the 1.7 mile inland. We're talking about straightening the Miramar curve, double tracking and triple tracking, replacing bridges. We're going to make sure this carry or the second busiest passenger corridor after the Northeast in the country. Uh, yes, it is far second, but it's the second busiest. We want to make sure this corridor operates uh, correctly. And, and, and that's what we're doing at Sandag. And Hassan, you touched on this earlier, but tell us more about the scope of this project. Uh, how and where would the tracks be relocated? Two years ago, we started what's called the corridor management study, a $3 million study to look at actually option of where this uh, track will be relocated. And we, the study concluded two alternatives, both of them uh, 80 feet down underground in the city of Del Mar. And eventually that study now is ready to move into the next stage, which is the environmental stage where we're going to pick the preferred alternative, not two alternatives. It is going to be inland, uh, short of a mile inland, and it's going to be underground 80 feet down at least. And I believe uh, it, it's going to cost somewhere between two uh, to $2.5 billion. The majority of funding for this plan is not in place. Where would that money come from? We had, of course, the study money that we already paid for. We had temporary fix, 115, which we already have gotten from the state and on some local match. Now we have the $300 million, which hopefully will do the environmental and design for the whole corridor. Then that would position us to go for federal money. We're talking billions of dollars and additional state rail money. There is no question there is a need for additional local money. That's why in our five big moves regional transportation plan, we assumed that the voters in San Diego will give us the funding needed. And again, I, I say underline the voters in San Diego, not me, not the board, but the voters have to say yay to our sales tax measure that bring local funding to match the federal and state money. Uh, most of this money is going to come from federal and state government, but local match is a must. And we're searching for ways to get additional local money if San Diegans say yay. And I'm an optimist. I think San Diegans will say yay because this is important for the future generations. What's the timeline for this relocation to be completed? I would like it to be completed by 2030. I've been speaking with Hassan Ikrada, CEO of Sandag. Hassan, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego, offering the online Master of Data Science program, a journey through computation, data analysis, and real-world applications. Learn more about the online Master of Data Science program from UC San Diego at omds.ucsd.edu. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Jade Heineman. Does San Diego Gas and Electric really need to keep boosting our utility rates? And are state utility regulators really looking out for ratepayers? 
Those two questions and more are now the subject of a review by the California State Auditor. Assemblywoman Tasha Berner Horvath of Encinitas requested the audit after she says she was swamped by calls from constituents when SDG&E raised its rates in January. This audit will be conducted while SDG&E has another rate increase request before the California Public Utilities Commission. If that's approved, it would further increase rates for the average customer by almost 9%. Joining me is San Diego Union Tribune energy reporter Rob Nicoleski. Rob, welcome. Nice to be back with you, Maureen. What exactly is the state auditor going to be looking into? Whether SDG&E is overcharging consumers? Yeah, they'll be taking a look at all the various reasons that go into a request that SDG&E makes in order to increase rates. They go to the California Public Utilities Commission periodically, and they tell them what they think it's going to cost to maintain and upgrade their power systems over the coming years. And remind us how much rates went up at the beginning of this year. In January, the average residential customer's electric bill went up 7.8%. And for customers who have natural gas hookups, their natural gas rates went up 24.6%. And that was largely due to higher natural gas prices that were seen all across the country. Now, the audit will include reviews of how state agencies are protecting ratepayers. Tell us about that. Yeah, the audit won't just look at San Diego Gas and Electric. They'll also look at the California Public Utilities Commission. The CPUC regulates investor-owned utilities like San Diego Gas and Electric. And the audit will also look at how the commission determines what is justified when it sets those rates for those utilities. We'll also, in addition to that, take a look at the Public Advocates Office. The Public Advocates Office is the independent arm of the CPUC that looks over and tries to protect consumers And the audit will take a look at the public advocate's office and see if the office is, in the words of the auditor, adequately performing its mission to obtain the lowest possible rates for customers. Now, is this going to be just a numbers audit, or will the auditor be looking into SGG&E policy decisions? It looks like it'll take a look at just all the different factors that go into rates and trying to see why they're going up, what are some of the factors behind that? And are those rates justified? How is SDG&E reacting to this news? Well, an SDG&E representative was at that committee meeting hearing in which the state auditor said that they will take a look at SDG&E rates. And the SDG&E representative said it welcomes, that the utility welcomes the audit. And the CPUC had their executive director there as well. And they said something very, very similar, saying that the process to approve rates is transparent, has lots of input from various stakeholders, and SDG&E has to justify its spending every single time they come to the CPUC. Now, SDG&E has another rate request before the CPUC. Will that be part of the audit? Yes, uh, the auditor will take a look at the past and the future rate requests. Uh, all that will be looked at. In May, SDG&E filed what's called its general rate case. And that estimates how much it will cost to upgrade and maintain the power system from the years 2024 to 2027. They do that in three-year increments, and it's a long process. It involves lots of stakeholder review and lots of discussion. And they are looking at some pretty big increases if that rate request is approved, aren't they? Yeah, they're looking at possibly roughly about 9% 
for a customer who has both electric and natural gas hookups in their respective uh, residential account. Well, for its part, the Public Utilities Commission says that it knows that rates are high. And this year, the regulators put together a workshop to address the issue. What, if anything, did they come up with? Yeah, they've actually had a couple of different workshops in the last two or three years. And the most recent one, it was basically a brainstorming session. They had members of the legislature there. They had utilities there. They had consumer groups there. They had some academic people there. And one of the ideas that was brought up in this brainstorming session was taking out public purchase programs from being included in rates. That comes to about $2.7 billion a year. They were talking about taking those public purchase programs out of rates and then having the legislature instead debate those costs each year in the state budgetary process. Now, public purchase programs, that includes things like programs that fund utility bill discounts for low-income families. And SDG&E was there at that brainstorming session, and they estimated that if they took out the public purchase programs, took them out of rates, put them into the state budgetary process, that it could save the average customer about $90 a year. How long will this audit of SDG&E take? State auditor estimates will take about seven months. And if auditors find that waste or bad oversight are part of the reason for the high rates, can the auditors do anything about it? That's a very good question. I'm not sure, to be honest with you, what kind of enforcement powers the auditor has, but I'm sure that if the auditors came back with something that showed waste, showed excessive rate increases, I'm sure that they'll come out with a report that would no doubt lead to quite a political firestorm uh, all across the state. So I think that even if they don't necessarily have enforcement powers per se, if they do, do come back with something that's substantive, then I think it would probably lead to some, some pressure from some political pressure uh, to fall on either the CPUC or San Diego Gas and Electric or both. Okay, then I've been speaking with San Diego Union-Tribune energy reporter Rob Nicoleski. Rob, thank you. Thank you, Maureen. Think of the nearest grocery store to your home. If it were to close down, how would it impact you and your family? KPBS North County reporter Tanya Thorne takes a look at how a Vons closing its doors in Vista could make it hard for some to access fresh, healthy food. Mark Day and his wife, Freddie Avalos, used to get their groceries from Vons in Vista. The store was less than five minutes away from their house. But that Vons is now closed and boarded up. Being able to have a grocery store that is very close and accessible was, has always been important to us. And that is why we're feeling really the, the strong effects of now being forced to drive a considerable way to get fresh food. Avalos says Vons' closure doesn't come as a surprise because in the last couple of years, the shopping center started to feel unsafe. Uh, there were many times where I would get out of my car and be accosted. And I stopped going there completely at night. I have not been to the Vaughn Center at night for at least five years. It simply does not feel safe. Uh, and I know that many people who also frequent that shopping center or used to frequent that shopping center feel the same way. KPBS requested an interview with Vons to ask about the reason for the closure. The company did not respond. We did talk to some Vons employees who didn't want to be recorded out of fear of losing their jobs. Some think the store was closed because of the increase of homeless in the area 
and the thefts the store was dealing with on a regular basis. Others told us it was due to the high cost to repair the refrigeration system and the store not making a profit. No matter the reason, the Vaughn's closure adds to the growing number of empty stores in the shopping center. Avalos thinks Vista City Council has neglected this part of the city while making improvements downtown. Um, they have moved mountains <laughs> to bring in uh, new stores and, and great restaurants and breweries and, and it hasn't necessarily been bad. But we can't focus on one part of our community and then turn our back on another part. Avalo says her and her husband are lucky to have a car and be able to drive further, but she knows not everyone has that privilege. People don't have the money for an Uber. People do not have friends or family that can take them regularly to the grocery store. And even when the Vons was here, one of the saddest things that I would experience, and this I saw every day, are poor people carrying and their families carrying groceries, sometimes in the hot sun, <laughs> um, sometimes in the rain. 76-year-old Alexis White doesn't own a car, but she has a motorized scooter. So I get in it and ride over and bring the stuff back. White lives in a senior community across the street from the Vons. She says many of her neighbors relied on it. It's making it a hardship for a lot of people. I never knew that I would miss it. <laughs> Since the closure of Vons, White has made the journey to Winco and Oceanside, where she thinks groceries are affordably priced. I think Winco being the cheapest store, and uh, I guess it's not too far. I could take the bus over or the train. City Council member Corina Contreras says food insecurity is an issue for many Vista residents, and the loss of a grocery store makes that problem worse. It's, it's really heartbreaking. I just, I fear that the quality of nutrition is going to be going down because what's most accessible there is you go to CVS, right? Uh, 7-Eleven, you're not going to be able to get the nutritional, the dietary needs for your children to grow up without, you know, health concerns. Contreras says the city council needs to discuss the safety concerns surrounding the shopping center and how to get the nearby residents access to fresh food. We can't survive off of fast food. We can't survive off of convenience food. We're human beings and we need real food to grow. Um, and we need a safe place to be able to shop. So, you know, with Vaughn's leaving, it really gives me a lot of concern about what's going to happen with that shopping center. She says the city has no information on what is taking Vons's place because it is a private sale. Tanya Thorne, KPBS News. The director of the National Science Foundation, his name, Seth Rahman Pachanathan, paid a visit to San Diego last week to dedicate an upgraded earthquake shake table at UC San Diego. The NSF put more than $16 million into the project, so Pachanathan was there to see how the foundation's annual investment in the region is being spent. The NSF invested $150 million in San Diego research in 2021 alone. Poncha Nothen spoke with KPBS science and technology reporter Thomas Fudge. You say that science is a bipartisan issue, and it certainly should be. But do you feel that scientists get the respect that they deserve when it comes to issues that are politically controversial? 
I think they do. I mean, as long as we have data and uh, information that backs up what we say, and uh, I have never seen anything less than respect for scientists. And this is some of the things that NSF does end up also promoting, is individual scientists and investing in their amazing ideas. But we also ensure that how science is represented, how science is perceived, how science becomes a solution pathway for many different grand challenges, and most importantly, economic prosperity and innovation across the nation. I think this is something that NSF does really well and should do better into the future. What are you doing in San Diego? So I'm delighted to be here because, you know, at NSF, we are always looking to places where they are exemplars of what NSF stands for. I often will talk about NSF in terms of what I call the DNA of NSF. The DNA of NSF has got two strands, which is the first strand of curiosity-driven, discovery-based explorations, and the other strand being use-inspired, solutions-focused, translations or innovations. These are highly intertwined. So if you look at the investments in discoveries, they make possible amazing inventions and vice versa, inventions make possible more discoveries because there are more things to be found. And so this symbiosis of what the DNA represents, I find San Diego is an excellent exemplar of that. Like Qualcomm? No, I'm very excited about Qualcomm as a company because Qualcomm was a small business innovation research invested program of NSF in the early 80s. And where it is today, a $150 billion company is something that we are very proud of. That's the kind of uh, inventiveness and what that invention means for promoting tremendous amount of prosperity, jobs, and in advancement of the technology and what it does for sort of addressing societal challenges. I think it's very, very exciting. We want thousands and thousands of Qualcomms all over our nation, not just limited to great places like San Diego, but even in places you know, that don't have such economic vibrancy, we want it everywhere because that's how we are going to ensure prosperity for everyone everywhere. In reading some of your statements, you have talked about challenges that we're facing. What do you feel are the biggest challenges in our society today and how does science need to respond? So the greatest challenge I would say is that we have not made possibilities for every citizen of this country to be able to have the opportunities they truly deserve. So NSF is deeply committed to seeing how talent everywhere can be energized. And so this we can do as long as science becomes a motivator and inspirer. And uh, you know, I often refer to this as STEM spark. How do you ignite the STEM spark in every kid everywhere? Now, some of them may pursue science and technology and engineering as their career pathway, but some may not. But it's important for them to have that, that exposure and that appreciation of science. And if that is there as an underlying you know, fabric of what uh, we do for, for, for all the children across the nation, I think we will serve ourselves very well for the future. Another big challenge I think you would agree we have is global warming. Is that a problem that can be solved by science or is that only a problem we can solve through changing the way we live, changing our lifestyle? I think global warming or climate uh, adaptation, mitigation, uh, climate uh, you know, change, whatever term you use to describe this, I think it's a comprehensive problem. What we should not do is to attempt to solve it by just saying, if I only did more science, I will solve it. If I only build more technologies, I will solve it. Or if I only can do you know, uh, behavioral changes, then I can solve it. It's all of the above and more. So we need social behavioral economic sciences, humanities, engineering, all, all aspects of sciences, technology. All folks coming together and addressing this comprehensive problem and finding these comprehensive solutions, therefore, that are real and can actually have an impact. So looking at it as only one slice of it, is doing real disservice, first of all, to the problem. Secondly, you cannot find real solutions and sustainable solutions to the, to the no pun intended, sustainable solutions to the, for, the, for the future. When you look at the challenge and other realities that are out there, what would you say are your priorities at the NSF? Our priorities clearly are, how do we make sure that the discovery sciences are even more strengthened? I call it the strengthening the established NSF as a major priority. At the same time, we cannot do this by not having the diverse perspectives that is rich, 
and needed for making real progress into the future, not only for the individual, as I said earlier, but also for all the communities in our nation, right? And so which means that inclusion and diversity is an important part of how do we advance into the future. That is making progress everywhere. Is there a way that you can be specific in terms of talking about areas of study? I mean, given the challenges we have and given where science is moving, do you see the NSF starting to fund a lot of one kind of thing? No, not at all. NSF should fund all aspects of science. That's why it's called the National Science Foundation, which means that all aspects of science should be funded. Social behavioral economic sciences, computing information sciences, biological sciences, geological sciences, right? And and surely we should focus on STEM education as part of that, so learning sciences. You never know what is going to solve the next big problem and where the innovation is going to come from, or where the innovation is going to come from, come from because of the fusion of all of these scientific disciplines working together. And so NSF is very interested in not only advancing individual scientific disciplines, but also motivating a lot of fusion and new areas of discovery that's made possible for the future. You believe that we're in a very special moment when it comes to science and when it comes to global competition. Tell me what you think about that. The most important thing is the fact that we have never seen global competition like what we're seeing now. And for me, global competition is a good thing, which means that it motivates us, inspires us to do better, more, faster. And so it's not about the competition itself. Yes, it is, you know, it is motivating us, but what it is, is about us. And therefore, I find that what NSF is looking at is, by God, let's see how we can get more innovations. I call it strengthening at speed and scale is, the, is, is, is sort of the moniker I use. This is a moment to strengthen at speed and scale. That was KPBS science and technology reporter Thomas Fudge speaking with National Science Foundation director Seth Roman Ponchanathan. KPBS On Demand is supported by the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego, offering visitors to the La Jolla campus special exhibitions, collection galleries, coastal vistas, seaside dining, and more. MCASD.org. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Kavanaugh. A horrific case of a woman enslaved by a Coronado couple unfolded in a San Diego federal court 75 years ago this summer. The case is remembered as a watershed moment for some of the civil rights protections we have today. John Wilkins wrote about the case in Saturday's edition of the San Diego Union-Tribune, and he joins us now. John, welcome. Hello. Thanks for having me. So this case involves a white couple, Elizabeth and Alfred Ingalls, and a black woman whom they enslaved to work as their maid named Dora Jones. You write that she was raped, forced to perform menial tasks, physically beaten uh, when she complained, clothed in rags, and paid nothing for most of her life. How did this go on for so long? Well, it went on for so long because they held a threat of jail over her head. Um, Mrs. Ingalls' first husband had forced himself on her a number of years earlier. Uh, that resulted in a pregnancy and then an abortion. And um, the couple held uh, the prospect of jail over her head all those years. So she was afraid that she might uh, be sent to jail or a mental asylum. And it was more than just the threat of jail. I mean, Dora Jones was really terrified of the Ingalls. Well, I think she was, you know, the threat that was held over her head was that because abortion was illegal back then, that she would go to jail. Elizabeth Ingalls also regularly ber berated her as being um, 
dull-witted and, and, and told uh, Dora that she would never be able to survive on her own out in the real world. So there was this threat uh, to Dora that if she tried to come forward and tell anybody her story, that nobody would believe her, right? She was young, she was black in a country that was still um, wrestling with any kind of fair notion of civil rights. So she was terrified to try and uh, make the case for herself that she should be free. The Ingalls were turned in by their daughter, as you write, who discovered Dora Jones was forced to sleep in the couple's car as they relocated from Boston to Coronado. Can you describe some of the details of how the Ingalls treated Dora Jones that came out during the trial? Well, as you mentioned earlier, the the, uh, federal investigators talked to a bunch of neighbors and friends who said that uh, Dora worked uh, often 16 hours a day, was, was forced to perform all the chores for the family. Um, They reported seeing her outside shoveling snow without a jacket or gloves. Um, They reported that uh, Mrs. Ingalls was frequently abusive to her, both verbally and physically. Um, At one point, uh, Dora's brother tried to check on her welfare from Alabama, and he was turned away at the front door. Uh, And the trial, as you write, is believed to be the first federal anti-slavery case since Reconstruction. Can you talk about the significance of this trial at the time? Well, so this case unfolded in in 1947, which is almost, you know, 100 years after the end of the Civil War. So anti-slavery cases um, that had, had been prosecuted under the 13th Amendment, which was passed in 1865, had for a long time mostly looked at um, sort of financial slavery, known as peonage cases. So if somebody owed somebody a debt, they would use that as a financial loophole to keep somebody enslaved. So the federal government had been prosecuting those, but in the wake of the New Deal and then in the wake of World War II, they started looking at other cases and applying the 13th Amendment to cases that involved uh, involuntary servitude. What did this case mean for civil rights protections? I mean, how was this case a watershed moment, as you write? Well, yeah, as I talk about a little bit earlier and in the story, it was mostly the federal government starting to look to expand civil rights in some of the areas, in particular, looking at working conditions for people. Um, So not just slavery in the way that maybe we sort of stereotypically remember it, somebody in in chains and physical bondage, but other kinds of enslavement and um, involuntary servitude. And then there also um, were justices on the Supreme Court who began looking at these cases who said, well, maybe we should look at uh, things that involve Uh, security of the person as well. And so it opened up an expansion of looking at all sorts of rights. And this story really exemplifies the work of California's reparations task force. Can you talk about that? Well, I think it does resonate with the task force, which issued a report, you know, just last month, showing the way that uh, the shadow of slavery has been cast um, over the years, across the decades, through the generations, it continues to today. So this Coronado case, you know, which happened almost 100 years after the end of slavery, showed very much how those tentacles remain when you had a woman who was still being enslaved, even if it didn't involve, uh, you know, physical shackles and chains. Elizabeth Engel served just 11 days in jail and was sentenced to probation. So in the end, after enslaving a woman for 30 years, justice really wasn't served at all, was it? Well, I, I mean, I guess it depends on who you talk to. I mean, certainly reading it through today's lens, it looks like it was a, 
she got off quite lightly, although it was considered pretty astounding at the time that she got thrown in jail at all. Um, so she did go in for 11 days in between her um, conviction and her sentencing. And she did have a three-year jail sentence hanging over her head if she had somehow veered from probation. But you're right, she never saw a day beyond that um, uh, of incarceration. And um, uh, Dora Jones moved in with her brother back in St. Louis and made it quite uh, well known to people that she wanted nothing further to do with the Ingalls. Mm. And then finally, uh, what do we know about the rest of Dora Jones's life? She lived a quiet life. You know, one of the unusual things about this case at the time was that the judge ordered um, Elizabeth Ingalls not only to pay a fine to the government, but basically to give Dora Jones back pay. $6,000, which uh, was almost $80,000 uh, in today's dollars. And Dora Jones uh, reportedly took that money as an annuity and lived out the rest of her days pretty quietly in St. Louis, um, living with relatives there. She turned down opportunities to take paid speaking uh, engagements to talk about her life uh, as a slave. I think she just wanted to try to enjoy whatever freedom she could with the years that were left to her. She died in 1972 at uh, age 82. I've been speaking with John Wilkins, a reporter with the San Diego Union-Tribune. John, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. KPBS On Demand is supported by Under the Sun Foundation, presenting the Candlewood Arts Festival in Borrego Springs featuring temporary public art projects that engage community and place. March 23rd. More at candlewoodartsfestival.org.